0: Hi everyone, I'm Allison and for this week's Scientist of the week. I'm here with Dr. Jay Phelan He's a biology professor at UCLA a researcher of evolutionary genetics and aging as well as a writer having co-authored mean genes So thank you for joining me Dr. Phelan.
1: You're welcome. It's good to be here Allison
0: <laughs> Well um, to start us off you've been teaching for a while now and have encountered many many students So I was wondering what do you think makes a successful student?
1: well m- the question of what makes a successful student is one I've thought about a lot, because when I was a student, when I first started college at UCLA, I was a terrible student. I really did every possible thing wrong. I never went to a single office hour. I didn't go to a lot of classes. I failed classes as a result, and so on. So so I, I answer this question from that perspective. And What I will say is is this, is that you have to, as a student, understand that you have to be in charge of how your program progresses. So that means that you're gonna get lots of advice from advisors, counselors, your parents, your friends, but you have to decide. So you have to think, do I like this class? Am I doing this because I like it? Or am I doing it because my parents have always wanted me to do this? When you talk to your instructors, you have to realize that there are situations where you control the agenda. So for instance, everyone will tell you, you should go to office hours, but then no one ever tells you why you should go to office hours. And it's funny because the assumption is, oh, we all know what you should do, but it's not clear. So the idea becomes, oh, we'll just ask the professor to deliver content again. but that's not a very good use of office hours. The professor has already done it in class. There might be a video from class. There's a book. You might have a teaching assistant. And so to hear it explained again is, can be useful, but think about this. This is the time to ask, how did you figure out what you wanted to study? How do you apply to graduate school? When you teach a class, how do you design it? Do you design the, the take home messages first and then, then the examples or what? Uh, when you write an exam, how do you do it? What's your process? If you were a student in this class, how would you do it? What do you think is the biggest mistake that students make and so on? And so understanding that there are situations where as a student, you have to take charge. You have to realize I'm in control here. I can figure out what to do or what to ask or who to get advice from and so on. So you have to be active, proactive rather than reactive in terms of of making the decisions in your college life.
0: It's really great advice. Like the idea to take initiative is something that I feel like even I am like, I need to work on that sometimes. Like <laughs> I'm like, you just kind of sit and you wait for everyone else to do something, but sometimes we got to do it by ourselves. <laughs>
1: Yes. Almost always. I, I, what I've thought about now, I'm in the process of finishing a book with a friend of mine and it's about how to get more out of your college experience. And one of the things we've written about is what we say is you have to have a relationship strategy. So when you finish college, at some point you're gonna to need to have recommendation letters. At some point you're gonna to need to get wise advice from a mentor. Well, you can't do that at the last minute. It's something that has to build over time. So even just the idea of how do you have a relationship with someone? Well, it means every year you have maybe you have 10 professors. So you go and you talk to them at office hours, you send them a quick note, you plot it out so that you can find out which one am I interested in, which one maybe seems receptive. And you might start with 10 and have three that are willing to meet with you. And from those, maybe one. And so all of a sudden over the course of your four years, you end up with two or three or four people who can help you, but you have to be active and you have to have that strategy at the outset.
0: Oh, okay. Um, That's great. And so at UCLA, you're a biology professor, but beyond teaching bio majors, you teach non-majors as well. So why do you believe it's important to introduce biology and the life sciences to these non-majors?
1: That's a really good question. When I first started teaching, I noticed that you would have these faculty meetings where it would be, okay, you're gonna teach this, you're gonna teach this, and trying to fill in a grid. And the attitude was sort of, oh, and if we don't have anyone to teach the GE class to the non-majors, oh, well, well, we'll get someone else. We'll get a secretary to do it because it doesn't matter. And it was this bizarre attitude that that was less important And more than that, it was an attitude that, well, they're like science students, but just dumber. And that's not true at all. They've chosen a different major. And what I came to realize is that when you're teaching science students, you teach them one biology class out of maybe 10 or 15 that they're going to have. So my percentage of their brain that I can influence is this. Whereas if I am teaching a non-science student their one life science class, for the rest of their life, when they are a parent, a consumer, a voter, just a citizen, everything they think about biology, about science, gets to come from me. So so it feels like teaching the the non-science student, you get more bang for your buck, but you're also, I think, tasked with a much greater responsibility that are they going to be scientifically literate are they going to know how to read a label or how to be skeptical about claims are they going to understand evidence and how we use it to figure out what we should should believe and so for that reason i find that it's it's fun you get a lot of bang for your buck and the students want to use the information that they get in class in different ways. It's not about, oh, I need this for my next class, I need this for the class after that, I need this for a graduate school application. They're thinking about how does this influence my own choices about nutrition or exercise or sleep or, you know, human behavior, all all those different things. And so I like that. There's a real relevance to people's lives. Uh, and I'll say one other thing on this. They come into the class because they've chosen not to be a science major. They come in with really low expectations. And that's funny because they usually have these misconceptions that oh, science is about memorizing stuff. It's about jargon stuff. It's not creative. It's done by people in lab codes far away. And that's not true, science is really interesting and relevant and fun. So every day they leave thinking, this class is awesome. So I like that I get to pleasantly surprise them with how interesting and relevant to their lives it is.
0: You can really show like the applicability to like so many different things, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah. that's part of the reason why I, I like, that's why I chose bio, I'm like, cause I saw, I'm like, wait, it kind of connects to so many different things. Like you just see it everywhere which was always really fun.
1: Yes, I, I think that's essential that if you're sitting in a class and it's not speaking to you about your life, it's very hard to integrate it into your brain, what you know, whereas as soon as it connects with things that matter to you, it it's no longer work. It's fun. It's easy to to think about it, to tell your friends about it and, and so on.
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. And so your main areas of research are evolutionary genetics and aging. So could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. I first started doing research in aging because I am so interested always in how things are relevant to my life. And I hate the thought of getting old, the prospect of 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 you know just getting older. I I don't like that. So I thought, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to cure it. So I went into it with these very applied hopes. And the research I did uh, has been focused on this one method that people use in lab animals to get them to live longer called caloric restriction. And we've known for 80, 90 years that if you restrict the caloric intake of mice or rats or fruit flies or worms, you can increase their lifespan by a lot, by 50% or more. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. So maybe we can learn something about human longevity here. And unfortunately, as I learn more about it and what evolution how evolution has caused aging to occur in different species. I came to this realization, A, that you weren't going to cure it. It's not like a disease that, oh, find the gene and turn it off. It's the accumulation of things that have bad effects late in life because natural selection can't weed them out. So I had this this sad realization that I wasn't going to cure aging, and then I had another sad realization, which was that caloric restriction, which was so effective in animals, like even studies that I did, and I realized that I think it causes them to get this great increase in longevity, because if you restrict their caloric intake, they immediately shut down investment in reproduction. Even if they're not reproducing, they shut down their hormone systems. They shut down behaviors. All these different things that take a toll, and so by shutting those down, they have a, everything is safer. Everything is better in their body, and they live longer. In the case of humans, we have evolved to to wait and wait and wait until we reproduce. You know, if you're a mouse, you're reproducing two months of age and every month you're producing your body weight in offspring. Whereas humans, you get to 20, 25, you still haven't even reproduced. And if we put humans on caloric restriction, and some people do this voluntarily because they want to live longer, it will shut off our investment in reproduction. If you're female, you stop ovulating. If you're male, your testosterone levels go down and, and your body senses, oh, times are tough, don't invest in reproduction. The problem is we were investing so little that there's no benefit to come from it. So that was one of the saddest papers I ever had to write. It was uh, called, Why Caloric Restriction Increases Longevity in Animal Models, but Won't in Humans. Uh, so, so, so those are, those are the areas of aging that I'm interested behavior. I'm fascinated by, I want to know what motivates people. Why do they do what they do? Why is it easy to do some things harder to do other things? Why is it that we are attracted to some people and less attracted to other people? Uh, all of these things where people make, Choices. How am I going to um, save for the future? So for instance, lately I've been doing work with a friend on, on behavior and genetics, but as it relates to economics. In other words, how do people plan for the future? Economics isn't about interest rates and, and the Fed and, and credit cards. It's about human behavior. How do you decide to to allocate your time, to save your money, to, to try and make it last? All these things. And so I think that evolution and genetics can give us insights into why we do the things we do. And it's not just with money. It's with food as well. Why is it that, that people have a hard time controlling their body weight? Like, it's a really bizarre thing that I could be silly. And I could say, oh, you want to weigh less, uh, given that the vast majority of Americans weigh more than they want to. And I could say, well, we already solved that problem. Eat less, move around more. There, you know, all, all done. But not the case. People want to, and they can't do it. So that's weird, so like, who's in charge? And to me, that's really interesting. Why is it that our behavior really nudges us towards calorically dense foods? Uh, Even when we don't want to, our brain, our genes are nudging us that direction. So I'm interested in understanding that better, again, from the perspective of, can I help people to get better outcomes?
0: That's really cool, because I feel like, um, well, a lot of the times when you think of behavior, I kind of think of it in like terms of like, it's just mental like psychology almost, but you don't think of it as genetic as something that's already a part of you that has like, it's part of humanity for such a long time. Like, that's a really cool take on it. Like, I never think of it that way. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. Just as just as evolution shapes, you know, body size or fur color in some rodent or the antler size in deer, it's also shaping our behavior because with one behavior versus another, you might end up passing on more copies of your genes that influence those behaviors. So yeah, it's it's just an extension of our our physical presence.
0: Wow. Right. And then so in your book Mean Genes that you co wrote with Terry Burnham, you kind of talk about that, about how the evolution of our genes has impacts on human behavior. Like you said, with struggling with dieting, with saving money and so much other stuff. But you also in this book, you kind of use that awareness that we're a little bit inclined towards certain habits. And we use that um, to have advice on how to outsmart our genes. So I was just wondering, while researching for your book, Did you find anything that specifically affects students? And what would be your advice to overcoming those mean genes?
1: that's a great question there there are so many of these drives that we are are fighting all all the time and if we can understand that we can i think get better outcomes that was our motivation for writing the book it wasn't just a book to say oh you can't help it because your genes are pushing you to do this or that it was it was the subtitle of the book is from sex to money to food taming our primal instincts, trying to figure out how can you get some better outcomes. And so for students, a big issue that a lot of students wrestle with is, is just that You've got so many things to do, so many options. And and when your brain is aware, oh, I could hang out with these people. I could you know, uh, increase my status. I could have a richer group of friends that I'm gonna have reciprocal altruism bonds with. All these things have have real value in our evolutionary past and today. But you're trying to balance a bunch of different needs that you have, one of which is, You want to do well in school you want to learn stuff you want to study hard you want to take the right classes so how do you do that and one of the things we learn in mean genes is that willpower on its own is not always that good that frequently we fail or your your willpower is good for a while but then all of a sudden you get weak at the end so one of the things that as a student you do is you have to when you have a small moment where, with a little bit of strength, you can get a good outcome. You have to use that minute of strength. So one of the things you might do is when students decide, hey, I'm going to study at this particular place, and I'm always going to do that, and you get it. So it becomes such a habit that right when I finish dinner in the dorms, I go to, in my case, biomed library. And once you're there, all these other distractions are out of the way. So you don't have easy access to food right there that you might have in your apartment. And because of that now, you don't have to keep using willpower. Oh, I'm, I'm you know, not gonna eat. I'm not gonna make dinner. I'm not gonna talk with my roommates. You don't have other people around. And so it doesn't take willpower to keep studying. You've structured your environment in such a way that none of these tempting things are there. And therefore, doesn't take that much willpower what takes willpower is structuring your life so that you know where it is you get there you have the stuff and and you can do it and so another thing you can do is is because it still takes willpower to do that you link it in with you know, your our desire to have relationships so you find a friend you say hey Let's go every you know Sunday through Thursday night from six to ten p.m. to the library. So now you've got someone else that you'll let down if you don't go. So it takes less willpower. So that would just be one. This removing the tempting things from your world uh, when you have some strength, so that then when you might be weaker, now they're not options, and you you are better able to to optimize your usage of time.
0: Oh. I'll keep that in mind for when school starts. Um, well, that wraps us up. So thank you for taking the time to talk with me, Dr. Phelan.
1: Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. These are, these are all fun, fun questions and interesting things to think about because that's how biology is.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And then for our listeners and readers, make sure to check out the Section podcast available on global platforms or the Humans and Science website for all of our latest interviews.